I'll write it and we'll do it live. It's the music I get that starts my feet tapping and I get all happy inside. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Would you stop with the down drumming? You ain't got no problem, Jules. Then wait for the wolf who should be coming directly. You send in the wolf? I'm just having the time. Having the time. I want all of you to enjoy your cake. So, enjoy. Drums. I don't like the sound of those drums. An Indian hollered back, he ain't no regular drummer. Welcome back to our season of firsts here at the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Last week we started our new season, which of course is a first, and this week we have our first interview of the new season, and it's also our first interview with a Latin and pop percussionist. Now in the past we have had several different classical percussionists on the show, but this is a different animal in itself, and man is it great. We went right to the top. So this week, without any further delay, we're going to discuss our guest, Mr. Daniel De Los Reyes. And unless you've been under a rock, you know who this guy is and you know who his family members are. He discusses that in detail throughout the show. Daniel is hands down one of the most popular and highly regarded percussionists on the planet. Don't believe me? Let's just go through a brief list of some of the folks that he's been playing with over the last 30 years. Don Henley, Earth, Wind & Fire, Aretha Franklin, Sting, James Taylor, Cheryl Crow, Chicago, Ben Vereen, and currently he is the percussionist for one of the most popular bands in the world, the Zac Brown Band. Now, I first met Danny several months ago. We were... Uh, together at uh, one of the Atlanta Drummer Tribute shows. I think it was the Steve Gadd show. And we spoke backstage and just uh, instantly hit it off. And, and very unlike a lot of the other conversations that I initially had with him, we talked almost nothing about drums. Um, in fact, what we talked about primarily was his music school that he has going on called Dayglow music and a handful of other things that we just discussed about life and every other thing outside of music. I could tell instantly by this guy's sincerity that I had to get him on the show and we have to talk about what he's doing with his life. So I reached out to Danny several weeks ago and he was in, actually in Cuba at that time and he got back to me telling me he was studying Shangui with some of the local musicians down there and a good part of that not only was for his own professional growth, but he is studying it to bring it back here to teach the kids at Dayglow Music. So he talks again in detail about this during the show. So once he got back in town, we were in touch again, and he says, hey, come on down to my house. So we sat down for several hours. We drank coffee. We talked drums. We talked life. And we finished it off with a trip to the airport. He had to get out of town to meet Zach and the guys uh, for a gig. And I really do wish that we would have had the opportunity to record the trip to the airport because the, the conversation just continued on the whole way there. Let's go ahead and get into our conversation, which is one of the best, most unique, and different 
podcast that you're going to hear from this show. So on our way in, we're going to listen to a short solo with our guest, Daniel De Los Reyes. I was going to say, I noticed that do you do your own work out there on the pool? Well, I just recently <laughs> hired somebody because I'm not yeah. doing a very good job of traveling all over the world and, and being able to keep up with everything around here. It's, it's a really tough one, but um, hopefully in the near future, I'm going to be getting some help. My son, my grandkids, and his wife are going to be moving, and uh, they're going to be moving here, and my son is is uh, very talented in many many ways and he'll be able to help me and help me run the school as well hold, so. hold on one second you can't gloss over the fact that you've got grandkids man uh, no, you I look know. like you're 28 years old <laughs> yeah, you've three, got three, grandkids three and five actually i just huh? had the the pleasure of of meeting them recently for the first time and it was it was the it was surreal you know i just saw them and I was immediate, like this this other kind of love that that you have towards something. Yeah. Immediate, um, you look at them and they're looking at you. And, well, who are you? You know, and yeah, you know, because well, this is Grandpapa. You know, and Grandpapa. Well, man, I was just called Grandpapa, or you know, I think they call me Popsy or something. Like that. <laughs> well, um, you know, I I, I have kid, kids also. I don't have I don't have grandkids, but I have kids also, and and it is it's it's an intangible feeling, an intangible love that as much as you try to explain it to someone, they're not going to get it correct. until they have them. So I completely understand that. Correct, and uh, so they might be coming here. And where are they right now? They live in Maui. In Maui, oh Hawaii. my God! Yeah, no, but my my son is Hawaiian. Um, well, okay. he was born in Las Vegas, but uh, yeah. he's he's Hawaiian. He was raised there, and his mother's Hawaiian, and so he's a Maui boy. Well, about know. the only thing I could say about that is it'll be cheaper if they move here. That's that's I about know, the right? only thing I'll say. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. you know, for for a while there, I was I was like. You know, this is a great place. It's uh, Maui, of course. Yeah, it's beautiful. If you've never been there, I definitely highly recommend it. I, I've been there it's, twice, and I'm ready to go back two right, more right. times, right? It's one of those few places that, you know, whenever I go there, I sleep actually well. For some reason, it, it just feels very uh, nurturing. Um, but anyway, so he was there, and he's he, he has options because he's done a, a whole bunch of different kinds of, of work everything from construction to you know parking cars to being a, a manager of a restaurant a bar and ran employees and all that kind of stuff and and he definitely has the talent in music just has to I wish I, I had him next to me all the time so I can kind of coach him you know but uh but anyway so he was there and um, I was hoping that that's that's great because the grandkids will be raised in a in a 
a great environment. Oh, you know, yeah. It's very, it's small, but at the same time, it's controllable, you know, and um, controllable in the sense that there isn't all this constant barrage of stuff. You can really con- control it between the family and friends in Maui living there because it's a very close-knit community. But, um, but anyway, but it's so expensive. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It, so, it makes San Francisco look cheap, doesn't it? You know, living out there. It's absolutely. unbelievable. You know? Absolutely. I can't believe I just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend has, <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, some friends' uh, commentaries, they stick to you and he'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I end up doing that a lot. But, uh, but anyway, when I went there, met the grandkids and hung out with my son and his wife who happens to be from the south from alabama um i got to suss out and see their situation and of course i'm not gonna come over and just you know lay the the input hey this is what your father says you must do now you know they're always you know wonderful thing is just to give people the, the the information and then they can make the a rational decision hopefully and and he's very intelligent my son and uh so you know i told him once i kind of figured out what was going on in maui it's it's for for two people raising two kids you can just imagine uh working full-time nannies and all that kind of stuff and picking up the kids and then it's very very hard because sure. a, a, a normal normal home is you know upwards a half a million definitely seven eight hundred thousand dollars this is you're talking about for just a normal home yeah so uh you know do the math you know you got to get the down payment you got to have enough income and all that kind of stuff by the time you end up getting that while you've been trying to survive is is a tough one where here you can manage to do that sure a lot a lot easier especially here with me because he has so many talents that i could assist him in meeting the right people you know so i'm hoping he comes here something that's that i would think would be kind of interesting and hopefully he would he would adapt rather well to it is the overall lifestyle which also sort of gets back to that whole thing about how you were saying i really sleep well in maui it's so much slower it's such more relaxed that pace of life out there it would be really interesting to see you know how he does when he comes over here because also the other thing that i always get when i'm in hawaii i always i love it for the first few days and then it kind of gets on me a little bit is that you really have a certain sense of isolation when you get out there because my god you are you are way away correct okay from, so from anything what happens with that is and i've thought about that plenty because when i was younger i was had to make a decision whether or not to go there and live there full time yeah. Um, so it's 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 a tough one. You know, it's a tough decision anyway. It doesn't matter where you live. But at that particular time, um, that used to really actually irritate me uh, quite a lot because you're talking in, about the slowness. Correct. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I had to just label it. And listen, let's just make sure that the the meaning behind slowness is it's not bad or good. Right. Okay. It all depends. And I believe in where you're at. Um, you're um, not level of maturity where you are at in life you know sometimes that pace is is uh is what you need in that particular mm-hmm. time and what you want you know more importantly um at that particular time i was so i was like a ping pong ball when i was young to to put me 
in an island like that was very, very hard. So, and I used to travel all over the world at that particular time. So you can just imagine how hard that that seemed to all of a sudden take that away. But um, in his case, um, yeah, he's he's very since he's grew up there, he knows the lifestyle, so he's already morphed into it. But at the same time, I've seen him live in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and so he's he adapts very very well. At like. If he has to wake up at you know four thirty in the morning to do a five a.m. job, he's there, and then and then after work, go and pick up the kids, and then go and practice, and then go and do a performance at in the evening, and then do something different the next day. He's he's got that ability, so that's why I see no problem in him coming here and immediately, you know, quickly adapting and expanding and being successful in this area here because of what he knows, because of his energy and and his thoroughness and everything that he does. So I, I think it's gonna be a really, really good, positive uh, direction in their life. So um, I'm here again to, obviously I wanna see him and, 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 and grow up with the grandkids and obviously his wife as well, but, um, but have them around, but be a compliment to not just all of a sudden have them here because I want them here for a few minutes at a time. Sure. You know, be a, a true compliment to the direction of this young couple and, and these kids' life. Yeah. Well, you know as well as I do that when you relocate to a new area, having any form of stability waiting for you when you get there is unbelievably helpful, whether it be a job or, like you said, family in this case. So, man, hopefully that true. works out. That's... And the thought of of me being able to be that in his life and in other people's lives, whether it be uh, kids, young adults, or or adults, um, it's mind-boggling to me. And it's such a great uh, blessing to me that I'm able to do that in and around being what I was some years ago, at being so all over the place and being what I deem is so... Uh, you know, immature and selfish, you know, but at the same time, so good that I did that because I've learned so much from that. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, definitely um, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to know that when he comes here, we will be able to um, give, them, give them some rock-solid, stable, found, you know, stability here sure. so they can then leap from there and go in whatever direction they want. Like I said, I re- would really love for my son to get involved in the music aspect to some degree that I'm doing. Obviously, the, 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 the main one is helping me to run Dayglow Music and mm-hmm. then uh, and to be part of it, whether it's um, helping me to get the teachers together, all, all the administrative stuff that, that, that a director would have. I would love for him to take that on or be part of it at least and then obviously to as we bring different teachers and he learns and to to run or help to assist to run the curriculums sure you know that that we run here so i'm looking really forward to it and of course having the the kids the kids are three and five years old so you can just imagine you know they're full of energy and Mm -hmm. you know and it's just like you know we said earlier the kind of love that you have 
towards towards them it's just an, an unimaginable you see them as part of your history you know I see my father I see my mom I see his family and those kids and they're then on top of it they're just so beautiful the way they interact with each other the way they're being raised and all that kind of stuff and and then you know the energy that they have you know and the coolest thing is you know towards the end of the day they just go back to the mom and dad and then it's like here <laughs> you right. know but i saw them the amount of energy they exert is just <laughs> incredible man i mean i've never seen like the little one three years old you know you imagine growing up in in maui they uh they they have it's just you know you can harness it be like a hydrogen bomb you know but uh <laughs> i've never seen like you know, like we'll go to the beach, and since they're not afraid of the ocean, they grow up there, and they're already like, you know, challenging the waves at three and five years old. So we go to the beach, and I've never seen anybody run from where you're laying down to the water, back and forth, but I don't know, like you know, a couple hours, like a hundred times, you know, it's just like, how do you do that, you know? And yeah. it's just like with a big smile and excitement every time. Like, you know how you get out of the ocean. I'm so excited. I just was in the ocean. Okay, then you do it again. Then, you know, you're in the 45th time and you're equally as excited, you know, and you do it again. And then it's like, oh, my God, he's nonstop doing that for three hours. You know, how's that possible? Uh, it's fantastic. There's not enough coffee in the world that no, can get yeah, me that. Exactly. It's natural. That, you know? so. I've, I've got to have two cups to get ready for the gig, man. <laughs> Much less run back and forth 50 times to the ocean. Yeah, so. it, it's, it's cute. They do, the, I don't know if you've seen this, you know, they do the this hand sign when the hang they're loose. in Hawaii, hang yeah. loose, right? Uh-huh. But then they, so he, because they they love Spider-Man, so they, uh, they kind of hang loose with, with the little finger, you know, the yeah. index finger. And um, so that's why sometimes on stage, that's, it's kind of like my thing, you know, it's like do this and because I'm kind of imitating my grandkids, yeah. <laughs> you know, but they're so funny. So sometimes I call them up uh, FaceTime before like intermission on the show and we'll be talking, they're looking at, you know, what, you know, this other grandpa is doing. Oh, wow. I've never seen anything like that in a show or something. And I'm like, like this. And I'm, they laugh and they look wow you know but wait until they see it in real life hopefully they'll enjoy it <laughs> oh they will they will they'll dig it man you know danny this has been one of the longest run-ups to actually introducing the guest on the show that i've ever had i think it's fantastic i think i, w- I want to let everybody know what's going on because the majority of the time this show is recorded either in my house in my studio mm-hmm. or it's done uh, like on location, like sometimes in green rooms, occasionally on like the front lounge of a bus, you know, or something like that. But today we are on location just south of Atlanta in Fayetteville, Georgia, with a gentleman who comes from an incredible percussion and music background. The heritage, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, just goes back generations and looks like it's going forward generations as well. I'm sitting in the studio here with Daniel Dallas Reyes, current percussionist for the Zach Brown Band. Man, thank you so much for inviting me down here, Danny. It's, just, it's thank, a real honor, Thank you man. for having me. Oh, absolutely. I, I want to mention one thing quickly that you and I were talking about before we turned the microphones on. Okay, you've been here in the uh, uh, metro Atlanta area for about seven years. Is that correct? Correct. Almost eight years. Almost eight years, which which is basically the amount of time you've been in the band. You've been, correct, been, in, correct. You've been I, in Zach's band. It, As you were saying, we could throw a rock and hit Zach's house from here. Uh, but 
you have lived in several other not only major cities but countries. You you come by way of of Puerto Rico. You were you born in New York, is that correct? You correct. moved here from Las Vegas. Did you also spend some time in Los Angeles as well? Oh, absolutely, Tw- yeah. over twenty years. Because so your brother lives out there also right now, right? Uh, I have one brother, the actor that lives in Los Angeles, and the other one, the drummer, the actor that just did Call of Duty Black Ops Four, and his wife, who's the lead actress for the Fosters, she lives. They live in Los Angeles. The brother, two brothers actually. Um, the other two brothers and two sisters live in Las Vegas because that's where kind of essentially we grew up. Right. And then, uh, yeah, and then my dad lives in San Francisco and then my mom lives in Puerto Rico. Wow. So everybody's spread out all over the place, man. You're, you're, spread you're, out, but actually, Your kid's in Hawaii, then we go to San Francisco, Vegas. Well, right. Yeah. Um, but it, once you start kind of seeing the the reasoning behind you you start realizing that there could be no other cities uh, for us um because like you said i'm a uh i'm really i'm a fourth generation musician and then like you said it keeps going but um following the the rest uh, the 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 logic and 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 the best way to live for every one of my family members in the past, my dad, who's currently still, uh, you know, killing it out there, um, you have to go where music is prominent. Sure. So music was prominent in Havana. Mm-hmm. My great-grandfather had um, love of music. Then my grandfather, trumpet player, singer, crooner, started Casino in La Playa, Havana was uh, killing when it comes to having great music, pioneers creating a lot of the music that you hear. My dad was born into that, so my dad just jumped right into that, except instead of playing trumpet, my dad became a drummer, very, very famous in Cuba. And then you go to New York City. New York City was, at that time, the, 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 the Mecca. The, right. the, the capital of, of entertainment, jazz, big band, you know, bebop was just beginning, uh, 50s. Right. Danny, just, just real quickly, stepping back to the Cuba thing, was this, was the move uh, really because of the revolution there? Did they get out prior to like so, the, the Castro Yeah, so revolution? I, I had yeah. I just recently found more information when it comes to uh-huh. that because I used to think it was just be- because of that. Obviously, that was the final catalyst but they were you know the the thought was this was going to resolve itself somehow or another and get back to going back home that never happened so but you know my dad used to go all the time to new york city why because my grandfather was doing fairly well as one of the leaders of an orchestra in cuba called casino de la playa Mm -hmm. and with that, they had a little bit of money. My other family members were dentists, so they had a little bit of money, so they could afford to travel. So they used to go to Cuba, I mean, uh, to New York City all the time. So my dad learned, knew how to speak English, was already going back, and I'm talking back and forth, mm-hmm. um, educating, going to school in New York City. So it, it was he was kind of. You know, living in both places, 
because they could afford it. Not everybody could imagine. And in those days, it's it's intense to do it now, you know, by whatever, by city, you know, living in both places. So when, you know, the, the, the coup happened and Batista was overthrown and Fidel was coming, you know, it was a, too much. It was too abrupt, too military. It wasn't, it was, even though everybody, when I say everybody, the, the the township was pretty much in agreement that a change needed to be made because of the complete separation between, uh, you know, people that had money and people that didn't because that's what separated people in Cuba. It wasn't color, race, um, you know, belief, uh, what you look like or anything like that. It was just basically monetary. Um, but there was a lot of people that really didn't have that much. So people that were kind of in the middle or even they saw the the unfairness in a lot of ways of the people that didn't have anything. So they knew something was going to happen. But, you know, an abrupt military coup was, was scary. So they took off, you know, knowing that, you know, they're, they're going to come back. Like, for instance, when my dad left, he gave our house in, in Havana, which is not not ours per se because someone lives there a family sure. that took that he gave it to to take care of it but he said take care of my house I'll, I'll be back you know that type of thing you know he painted a z on the wall for zorro and you know and he and <laughs> and it's still there um, wow and he said uh you know i'll be back you know but obviously that didn't happen so you can just imagine how torn they were but any uh, anyway so they moved to the most logical place for them, which was they were already used to in New York. And plus, musically, it was about the only place they weren't going to move. There was, at that time, Las Vegas wasn't really doing well. And Miami was uh, maybe the next place. But New York was it. New York, you know, I mean, right there, the, the, the ballrooms, Palladium, and... And, and all the different places that, that, that there was live music and jazz, big band was, was right. killing and bebop was just, like I said, you know, beginning. So it was, there was all that excitement of music. So that's where they moved. So, and then from there, uh, my dad got a contract, you know, he met my mom and the family was growing and, and so they needed to follow the money. He met her in New York. Correct. Right. So my mom being Puerto Rican. And, but there was a lot of work in Puerto Rico, not as much as New York, but they, he got offered a great contract, so he moved to Puerto Rico. Las Vegas was at that time beginning to, to, to grow, you know, mm -hmm. as, because Mafia kind of moved from Havana. They basically said, you know, if we could build, you know, the popularity in Havana as, as the place to go to, we can do it someplace else. And then right. they diverted their attention to Las Vegas, not that Las Vegas was just built on mafia only, but um, but still, you know that all the entertainment and all the gambling and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff went to a place that that they could do that at. So Las Vegas was it. So they moved. My dad got that contract in Puerto Rico, stayed there for a while, but then he got offered a contract in Las Vegas, and that was 1970. So I was already you know 10 years 10 years old. So that's why, growing up in Puerto Rico, my dad had that contract in a Tropicoro Hotel at the El San Juan Hotel, which is still there. Um, very beautiful hotel. And then, uh, then we moved to Las Vegas, and uh, the, the contract was with, at the 
what was the name of the hotel? Thunderbird Hotel, which is no longer there. And for a, a Latin show called the Latin Fire Hotel with great musicians uh, from the Puerto Rico area that, that relocated to Las Vegas. So we moved the whole family over there in 1970. But the reason for that is because there's music there. There's money to be made. So my dad was basically uh, chasing wherever it was it was good where where he can thrive you know especially the family was growing now it went from two kids to three kids now there was four and five kids so we have five kids so you know you got five mouths to feed so las vegas was the place to go to so we ended up going to las vegas that's where we stayed for longest of time um, you know and my dad was playing this is started in cuba playing um, a lot of what they don't no longer have that, but house bands, house bands was where each venue, in this case hotels, had a house band. That that band had to be ready to play for anybody that came, whether it be uh, a singer, a comedian, a singer comedian, a singer comedian dancer, dancer singer, actor. Um, so you had these, uh, you know, double and triple threats, you know, I call yeah. them, you know, and sometimes quadruple, you know, which is all the comedian, singer, dancer, actor, all of them, you know, such as, uh, you know, and Margaret, perfect right. example. Um, but you had a lot of those, those type of people, Joe Gray, Ben Vereen, um, you know, that, that could do multiple things and do them really, really well. So my dad played, started in Cuba, like for instance, Eartha Kitt. You know, I believe Eartha Kitt, he played at the Nacional Hotel, opening the Hotel Nacional, opening it, which is mm-hmm. crazy because I've been there from the courtyard calling him there. Go, hey, Dad, I'm, I'm there in Havana, which I went a few years ago, smoking a cigar here, looking at the stars, looking at the bay in Cuba, just to think you were here. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, we opened up the hotel. <laughs> Your grandfather was with the dance band, and I was with the showroom band. I'm like, whoa, I mean, that's incredible. And so anyway, um, so we went from the, 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 like he would play, I'm, I'm, Eartha Kitt was some of the people in, in, um, in Cuba, and then Puerto Rico, like uh, Connie Francis, Sammy Davis Jr., Paul Anka, Liza Minnelli, um, then when he went to Vegas, after he played the show, we stayed there. So he then started working in the showroom's house bands in a chain of hotels, which was unheard of to have a chain. Yeah. But Howard Hughes Hotels, Howard Hughes was the first one to start like owning more multiple hotels. You know, that, that now it's a common practice. But those days, you know. This hotel was owned by Bugsy Siegel. This one was owned by such and such, you know. Not really owned, but ran by, you know. Um, so anyway, he uh, he worked for Howard Hughes, which was a Dell Webb company. So he would go from a hotel and sometimes work at that hotel for two, three years and then go to another one. But that's how I ended up because my dad would end up taking my brother, mainly my older brother, and myself, my younger brother was too, too young to go. So just like you know, any father takes her son or daughter to work, he would take me. And so I grew up in the back stages, showrooms, you know, with the light guy and the light guy's my friend and, you know, the stage, the crew guys, you know, taking me along and showing me all the, 
all the stuff, and I would, you know, find the little cubby holes all around. So the, 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 they were playgrounds to me. Um, That's invaluable. That's great stuff. Oh, absolutely. You know, so I grew up, you know, every, every, like I said, Paul Lanka, you know, Eliza, Tony Bennett, you know, all the comedians like Alan King, Roy Burns, uh, uh, Bob Hope, Don Rickles, um, oh my God, there's so Mitzi Gaynor, Julia Prowse, Debbie Reynolds, uh, Shecky Green, all these different, you know, really, really uh, famous comedians that's, that's, actors that's show business royalty there you know basically. oh absolutely but not yeah. just like seeing them like you know sometimes they would make fun of oh the drummer has his little you know whatever and there's my little head or <laughs> you know popping out and, and you yeah. know i'd be sitting next to my dad and and you know it was a, a fun thing to do but for me it wasn't it was kind of hard just to imagine sitting a kid that just like my grandkids have that kind of energy for three hours while you know sitting there you know while they're doing a show and a lot of the jokes and the singing you know i didn't really understand right or want to at that particular time all i wanted to do was go and seek little hiding places and and go to the lights and see how they work and all that kind of stuff so it was hard to sit there next to my dad but at the same time i was getting morphed you know sure. into the whole environment and uh and obviously, sitting next to my dad, I got to see what that was like. So being on stage, to me, is very comfortable. So when I go up on stage, it's almost a comfort zone. It's like I feel comfortable. I feel exciting, you know, because I've, it's like what's comfortable to sure. you. So I've been doing that since, you know, five years old, you know, or right. whatever. So, but anyway, you know, the Vegas thing uh, lasted a long, long time. That's where I went to school. Junior high school, I mean, uh, elementary, junior high school, high school, and then I started to go to college, and then I dropped out because I was already working so much in Vegas. It was hard because you're already working, and working, making pretty decent money already, um, whether it's lounges, showrooms at that particular time when I started, um, like I was 17 or something like that. Um, professionally, you know, I was starting lounges. You made anywhere from three to $500 a week. You know, so that to a to a kid is, you know, it's it's really good and really bad at the same time because it was you know playing music, which I kind of already knew how to do because yeah. of just being there and practicing and taking it all in as I grew up. Um, so I already was able to work professionally. When you were in college, were you studying music? In okay, college? so yeah, so yeah. I went to college. Um, there was a great great band that, that my brother actually played in. My older brother. Um, and the bands in college, he stayed in college longer than I, even though he didn't finish and graduate either. But um, I started to go, I'm, I'm not kidding, I lasted maybe not even six months. Um, uh, it was for music, but, but mainly it was to finish the, the next round of studies. Yeah. But it didn't make sense to me because um, I was already working and I was going to go to college to play music so I could work and I'm already working yeah. so and it wasn't appealing to me unfortunately I mean it, 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 it's it's both good and bad because I always try to get the the young adults who I coach nowadays to both work you could go to school the schools now are, are I mean the music programs now that they have are so amazing and so wonderful so it's it's incredible and and a great experience to have the college years. You know, if you're doing it, like I've given uh, seminars and, 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 and clinics all over the country 
at universities and I see the kids and what they're doing and the bands and how they evolve, it's the greatest thing, especially when you're in a place that doesn't have the amount of music, professional music that you're able to work. So you get that experience at school and then you got to go to like it's always been, you got to go to the capitals of where music is prominent in order for you to go mm -hmm. out and make a living doing what you learn. So Las Vegas is still one of them. Uh, obviously, you know, you have Nashville, New York City still. Um, Atlanta to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with Seattle and all that kind of stuff. It's not like you cannot mm -hmm. make a living, um, but uh, Los Angeles is mm -hmm. the main one. Um, always, but uh, at least to me. But um, but y you you kind of after acquiring all that information, you want to go and and not only make a living, you want to go and, and and be in in that circle of competition, so you can go and 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 be in the records and be in the recordings and be in the films, and which there's still a lot of that. Uh, less and less, but at the same time, that's, that's the, the major cities that have that. Um, so, but anyway, um, going back to the, the university of myself and my brother, um, well, at least I can speak for myself. I, uh, you know, I made that decision. I'm going to go and just keep working. So I went in the school of, um, of the streets. And what happens is, is that for me, I, I I had limited amount of knowledge and information. I had talent because I was kind of born with that. I music came somewhat easy, um, but that's still no excuse for learning and practicing every day and learning because and what what ended up happening with me was competition. You know, kind of, you know, I get to a place thinking I'm going to do really well, and you know, there's other kids there with that have been practicing way more than I have and studying way more than I have. And, you know, you get your 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 butt kicked in and, and then uh, you go, wait a minute, I got to go back to the drawing room. So I practiced 24 hours a day learning what I needed to learn and uh, in order to, to facilitate work. So and that's what ended up happening with me. I did... Um, so that played all the lounges. And lounges, you had different levels. The same thing as showrooms. So I look at them like lounges you had A, B, and C level. You know, obviously A, just so you know, in those days you go to the lounge and you would see Tower Power in right. a lounge. You would see Buddy Rich Big Band in a lounge. Mm -hmm. Louis Prima in a lounge. Um, so to work in a lounge was pretty, you had to be really, really good. Um, then you had B lounges, you know, which were groups that were, uh, doing well, but not in that category of Tower Power and Buddy Rich type of band, mm -hmm. but they were still great, great bands. Um, and they were getting better all the time. And then you had sea lounges, which, you know, you, you played uh, the hotels that maybe weren't on the strip. Right. And maybe you would do also outside of Las Vegas and you would go do Ely, Ely, Ely or Tonopah, you know, little towns throughout Las Vegas and play, you know, country music and, uh, you know, Wayland Jennings and Willie Nelson and all right. that kind of stuff and, and to play those kinds of bars. But that was just to make a living, you know, and then you would try to get a, a better gig. So I went through all that kind of stuff. And then I and did those lounges and then I moved up in lounges and then I started doing the showrooms. Um, 
Roughly what what year are we talking? So you're talking like early like eighties. Gotcha. You know, started like around eighty two, eighty three, around there, and then I started uh, working with uh, this artist by the name of Ben Vereen, who wasn't really an artist uh, known so so much in Las Vegas because he was a Broadway Broadway, singer, song and dance man, but at the same time. Um, he would play Las Vegas and sometimes started working with him on a regular basis and started touring actually the world with him. And those um, those were the showroom gigs. Showroom right? gigs, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. But in that time, uh, my brother had done that gig for a long, long time as a drummer. And so he moved to Los Angeles. So I kind of, you know, I would go to Los Angeles every once in a while. Los Angeles was the place to go to uh, in New York. Nashville was still very, very... Right. Uh, raw at that particular time. There wasn't as much work as obviously there is now. Um, but uh, so finally I would go to Los Angeles once in a while and I would see in the clubs. And for instance, I'll give you an example. Well, you know, good friends of my dad. For, uh, one, one dear one that's a mentor to me is Alex Acuna. So I would go to, um, for instance, the Baked Potato, a little jazz club, which is super, super famous for having the best of the best. I'm there, still there. And nothing but baked potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great baked potatoes. Um, right. But I would go there and, you know, see Alex or Ralph Humphrey or Jeff Porcaro or Carlos Vega or Vinny um, all the time. So, but I knew that, and then I knew that was the place to, to kind of go if you, the best, best musicians. And what they would do in the daytime, play the clubs at night to have fun, and then in the daytime, they'd be doing all sorts of record sessions, and then or they'd be doing films. And so I went with Alex to a few recording sessions, and I was, oh, my God, you, you have to be a, like a ridiculous musician to be doing this, you know, films and, and, uh, and, and, and record dates. And so I remember one time hanging with him, you know, <laughs> uh, Went to go see him play with Al Jarreau, and I forget, and he was working so much. And he had promised his wife he was going to, I forget, if it, yeah, it was dinner. He had to be home at a certain time, and he's playing with Al Jarreau and doing a sound check. He's also doing Pat Metheny and doing film sessions also in the day, having played with Weather Report, and, and he was just, you know... The, one of the guys and uh so we're at at a show called fridays and he's playing with al Jarreau and see when horns are there and and uh they were playing that song um does anyone want it roof garden roof garden yeah yeah and i oh man i can't believe they're playing it. and he looked at his watch and he's like oh my god i gotta go home so he goes over and he goes i gotta go and he took off <laughs> <laughs> and he comes over and he goes, here, play. And he gives me a stick. And was he I mean, playing kit or, or percussion? Oh, kit. kit, yeah, gotcha. Kit. Uh-huh. So, and I remember I was just going back and forth to L.A. I was playing lounges, but nowhere near in that level. But, man, he just play, And I was, I, I'll never forget that. I, my stomach was just, it went from being relaxed watching him to all of a sudden just this knot. And I never forget the attitude of, Jerry Hay from the Sea Wind Horns going, ugh, what the heck? You yeah. know, now this, like, you know, this this kid now is going to play. And 
And I never forget uh, Lenny Castro. He was playing percussion. Oh, he's he another was, slouch, right? Lenny yeah, Castro. Yeah, he, he had, he, he, they ended up branding me Tarzan because I was into like weightlifting at that time. So, you know, it looked like a million bucks, but you know, couldn't really play roof garden. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, sat in, played the song as best as I can. They were just like, you know, sighing, <sighs> you know, and I could see them doing it, but they were doing it on purpose. And but that was like one of the. <laughs> That was one of those things that you go home, oh, I got to practice, you know, I got to practice, got to practice. So anyway, um, so I used to go back and forth to L.A. and see that. So I was very, uh, I was very much uh, impacted by it. So I, that's where I wanted to be. So after I kind of started having, you know, a little bit of money and, and I would go back and forth. So I wanted to make the move. Did not know really how to do it, but but I ended up being in L.A., so you asked me earlier, how long did I stay in L.A.? Man, 20 years, off and on. And that's where I meet, uh, not immediately, it took me a while, actually, um, to start playing like at the Big Potato. I used to live at the Big Potato working there for a while, um, playing with two, three bands a week. Um, but that's how I met all my, you know, connections, but they became great, great friends, you know, and... You know, that's how I ended up getting gigs. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. I'm meeting, uh, you know, Ronnie Laws and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, um, I'm trying to think of Doc Powell, a guitar, a wonderful mm-hmm. guitar player. Um, that's how I met, ended up meeting Philip Bailey and, and Rodney Franklin and working with them. And that's how I ended up getting the Earth, Wind & Fire gig much later. So with, with all those connections that I would get at the Big Potato. So um, I ended up working there like constantly, like I said, at least two, three times a week. And it wasn't so much the money to, to because it didn't money pay, pay yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So you make 75 bucks, 100 right. bucks, but the connections that you're making. So I would go from doing tours, uh, you know, for two, three weeks or maybe a couple of months, and then you'd be off for a long time. So I ended up like, you know, working a lot with casual bands and casual bands in LA. I don't know what sometimes they call them uh, society gigs, wedding, club dates, yeah, club that sort dates, of thing, exactly. Yeah. Um, corporate I, gigs, corporate gigs, exactly. I I made a living on doing everything from you know bar mitzvahs, uh, um, Arabic gigs, Persian, a lot of Persian gigs, um, you know, trios, jazz, uh, Brazilian. That's where. You know, I, I got my knowledge and, you know, ability to know so many songs, you know, Motown reviews and all sorts of stuff in between gigs. But it was funny because I ended up, you know, working with, for, I'll give, let me bring up Earth, Wind and Fire again. So uh, play with Earth, Wind and Fire. What but, year? What year was Earth, Wind and Fire? Um, Earth, Wind and Fire was around 2002 or three, something like that gotcha. for a few years. I think I lasted three years, but I, and still you get home, you know, let's say right now you're touring for two months. Now you don't have any work for three months. So <laughs> the money you bring home is not that much, especially when you live in Los Angeles and, you know, you have a family to uphold. So that money goes by really, really fast. So you got to keep working. So, you know, I wasn't so much into, I didn't, because, you know, you have all these little cliques. So in those days, you have the the film musician clique. You have the record clique. And then you have 
you had the the, the, the Christian music clique. Mm-hmm. You had, uh, and then all the casual leaders had their, and their their guys that they use. And like anything and everything, sometimes if you leave for a while, then you don't get the gig. You know, so I you have to kind of finagle that and always nurture those relationships and whatnot. But I would always end up working because um, I always kind of from watching my dad knew how to adapt and be able to give the promoter the 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 agent definitely the audience kind of what they wanted not just go there and play percussion but you know be obviously you know know the material that that you have to know and be able to match all the original parts and stuff but to be able to be entertaining sure that i got from from being with my dad watching the whole thing all those those years and growing up in Vegas and all that. So, you know, that's why I, I ended up always, always working. Um, but it was funny because I would end up doing, let's say, Earth, Wind, Fire for two months, and then i get home and do a casual wedding, and then we end up doing, you know, In the Stone of Earth, Wind, Fire, and, and they would, oh, and we have an Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, yeah. member here, Daniel Delsreyes, and they look up, and I don't know about that. He doesn't look like he would be in that band, but yeah, that was, you know. And the same thing happened when I was with Don Henley. You know, I come back and you know, I got to go work and we're going to do the Eagles song and this man here works with the Eagles and Don Henley and they would announce it. And and so, you know, just the the novelty of that was cool for them to say that. Yeah. And, and, um, and so I would end up, and plus I would play the songs definitely correct and, and add some and they they trusted me I mean, this is funny because a lot of times you know they want to do whatever let's just say uh you know rihanna or you know well this is how i play it with stevie nicks well that's not what it's on the record i'm telling you what we play with stevie nicks you know right. and it might be different or it could be peter frampton it could be chicago it could be you know this is how we play it so it's not like you can, well, that's not what's on the record. I understand what's on the record. If you want what's on the record, I'm just telling you what I play with them. You know, so there's always that. So you got to trust me because I play with them. It's not like I just got it secondhand information or third hand. No, I'm actually one of those guys that play it. You know, so. Well, you know, uh, Danny, one other thing that, that I've mentioned on this show several times, and I tell students all the time, is that when it comes to doing like like we're talking about a casual gig or a corporate gig where you have to do this incredible vast array of just every style you can possibly think of on one gig that if you do that gig right if you spend the time and you do it authentically it's going to be one of the most challenging gigs that you do because i mean you know you end up doing something like for example you start at the beginning of the night and you do some kind of a dinner set thing where you're playing standards well if you play that correctly and if you play it authentically and then two hours later just like you said, you're playing Earth, Wind, and Fire, or you're playing an Eagles tune, and then you play it authentically. You play it correctly. That's something that not a lot of gigs have that kind of demand because, for example, let's take an artist like Sting, who you've actually worked with. Oh, you have to learn the Sting catalog. Simple as that. You don't have to learn stuff from 1935 all the way up to 2015. Right. Well, yeah. you can just imagine how much I've heard growing up with my dad yeah you know it's going back to you know vaudeville broadway big band 
jazz showrooms because all these entertainers would come in and do a book of music every right. night. Then on top of it, growing up in Las Vegas, having you know friends that was you know the the, the classic rock. You know, I'm talking everything from Doobie Brothers, from Foghat, you know, all that kind of stuff. But also having the disco era, you know, which was all the Bee Gees and, and, you know, all that kind of material. And then having also the Motown R&B stuff and then growing up with that. And then also having to do the lounges in Ely, Nevada, doing some of the country, but old country. Right. You know, so having all that kind of stuff, then expanding on that and then going, you know, being able to play, you know, a trio or quartet or a quintet and playing Brazilian jazz, I had to expand my information, uh, you know, small group jazz and settings and bossa novas and and sambas and all that kind of stuff. So that's a whole other thing. So having all that and then on top of it, playing with the actual groups that a lot of the music was being played in the corporate events. Right. So I have all that. So either I know it, have heard it, or know it, heard it, played it with the actual artist. So, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times what happens in the current band that I'm in, um, we, we do a lot of covers. And I have a great time doing covers with anybody. But I, I'm always in the mindset of, why are we doing the covers? But we do them, and we do them quite well, and we stretch, and people enjoy them. But I'm, I'm always like, well, let's get that and do something kind of like that similar, but let's do something different. Right. That's where I come from. Because, for instance, when I play with, Chicago, or Twin and Fire, Peter Frampton, all these these people, Fleetwood Mac, and Stevie, um, Don, uh, Aretha Franklin, Patti LaBelle, all these kinds of people. Um, we would never do anybody else's music. We always do. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, their catalog alone, you could do Chicago and do three hours and then do another three and not never, never do anybody anything. else's music. Yeah. All right? But... We do a lot. We'll do, you know, whatever, anywhere from five to sometimes even 15 covers. All right? Some, sometimes we've been known to do that. And like I said, we kick butt on it, and we're doing quite well. But whenever it comes time to it, it's like, and Danny's opinion is, is like, you know, well, that's, that's cool, and let's not do that. Let's do something similar. And, and do a song that kind of has that energy. All right. So since that doesn't happen, since the other mindset, okay, we're going to do it, let's say right now, a Prince song or an Aerosmith song. Okay. Like the record. And then, ding! Why? Do it like the record. Let's make it our own completely. So... But that's in my instrument. And a lot of times, you know, like the record, well, I, sometimes I played the record. Right. So I don't want to do it like that because why would I want to do it like that? I or want to do it different. Or in some cases, there may not even be percussion on the original. Well, true, true on that. You're exactly. doing something, yeah. So, but a lot of times I've actually played it either right. on the record or played it live with 
that particular artist. So now we're going to do it as a Zach Brown band. So I'm like immediately, well, I know or kind of know the original part, but I don't want to do that because I want it to sound like a new thing. But that's in my instrument. With the other guys, you know, they, they, they try to play the parts exactly, and they do a great, great job of doing the parts just like, like the record. And it all depends where you come from. Now, mind you, I made a living playing covers right. in between gigs. So I played like enough covers, but now I'm doing covers like in stadiums, you <laughs> yeah. know. But uh, but it's just the funniest thing because you have that that difference. But like, but it ends up morphing into our version anyway. So and that's what makes it so cool. But it's it's interesting to see, like the the guys, you know. Oh, we're gonna play, it. like for instance, Sweet Emotion. Man, play it just like Aerosmith. Uh, yeah, okay. Not really well, any congas on, on well, Sweet no, Emotion, no, no, but, right? But I'll give you an example. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, on, on Sweet Emotions, you know, when it comes to trying to play it somewhat similar, like 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 the like the original version, I would play a pad, an electronic pad, and just beef up the drum parts. I wouldn't play anything else. But acoustically, we just played it backstage with a cajon, a little shaker, uh, violin acoustic guitar, background vocals, a choir that was there, Zach singing with Steve, with Steve, and uh, it sounded like unbelievable because it had that kind of country, sweet emotions. Now that is Zach Brown band at its best. Yeah. Um, killer, killer, because we then take that information, which is already like, incredible which is sweet emotions and now take it and make it into a zach brown you know sure. uh, song and that comes off i wish we could do an album of live music that we turn into zbb not try to do it like them right but make it our our own yeah and which eventually happens anyway um, because that's just the way it is on live. But at where we start is to duplicate the original parts. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, that, that's, that's a great segue to talk about how you got involved with these folks. Because I, you've been here in the Atlanta area for about seven or eight years, mm -hmm. which also pretty much it, it kind of runs almost exactly parallel to you being involved with the band. But now I know from doing a little bit of reading, you and I didn't talk about this, but I did a little bit of reading that you actually met these these folks. You actually sat in one time with them, right? At one time, does it was that how it worked that you were at a festival or something like that, and they saw you had a Correct. hand drum, and you went and sat in, and then maybe like a year later, you you ran into those folks again, Correct. and then it just kind of grew from there. So how did that work? Correct. So just like what you just said, I was at a music uh, camp. And I had my jam baby with me, and uh, Zach was playing. And at that that time, I didn't know. I mean, Zach Brown band was famous to some degree. They had, uh, you know, Chicken Fried Song and Toes already there, and so they were doing quite well in the country market. And um, but I did not know of them at all. So 
you know, Zach uh, loves he likes he loves the djembe in particular um, instrument because I guess he used to uh, write songs and play djembe along with it in college, so he has a, a a familiarity. And when he saw it, he saw it on me, and so he kind of motioned for me to go over there. And so, but you know, the song didn't really call for anything like that. But at that time, he just saw the djembe and he wanted it there and so anyway i ended up playing with them on a couple songs and you know playing like a like a slow ballad type of thing on a well, djembe. Yeah. yeah but it would be cool if it was by itself but it was with drums so it wasn't really doing much it was just kind of you don't want to you just want to kind of enhance what the drummer's playing along when you're playing djembe you know your his bass drum is your djembe you know so um but anyway so we played and then we hit it off talking that night for several hours you know having a couple of whiskeys and just chilling out so the next year at the same camp we saw each other again and that's where um uh we we decided to stay in, in touch and then uh they invited me out to uh to a gig in in aspen but aspen was the the, the i didn't really i sat in there um, the first gig was at Red Rocks, um, Colorado, pretty, beautiful pre- theater. Pretty good first gig, man. That's one of the right, best right. amphitheaters in the world. It was video, a video. <laughs> uh-huh. And so when, typical, typical Zach, and, you know, they're going to video, and I just find out, you know, they're going to video tonight. And I'm like, man, I, I don't even know the music. I'm just learning it because don't worry about it. So I'm like, whoa, okay. So and that's how it went. You know, I just was a lot of times winging stuff because um, I didn't know the material. I had some charts made up and limited amount of time because I just thought I was just going to little by little morph and see, suss out the situation. But anyway, just dove in and, uh, you know, pretty much stayed, ended up doing the record. And as the record was coming out and, you know, I found out I was a band member. Um <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, oh, we, you know, can we have a meeting? Uh, we've decided to, no, actually, I think, I, to best of my recollection, I think Joandra um, told me, hey, I, I didn't know you were a band member. I'm like, what? And I think she found that on the news, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, that it came out. You know, new band member, Daniel Delisreus with Zach Bombay. And I'm like, what? I'm a band member. <laughs> now, quick question on that first gig that you did at Red Rocks. Yeah. You know, you were saying, hey, I charted out a few things, but I, you know, kind of made up stuff as we went along. Prior to that, this is a good time to bring up our mutual friend, your bandmate, Chris Fryer, friend oh, yeah. of the show, been on the show before, wonderful cat. Did you sit down and talk with him any prior to that show and no, just go, Chris, no, no, what, what, no, you know, what no. do you want me to do, man? Right, right. So, no, to answer your question, um, because I didn't know him and. Usually I would call the drummer and try to share notes, and but they were traveling a lot, and they were every, everything was very elusive, uh, everything from getting my equipment there and all that kind of stuff. So I just showed up and I kind of took it like, let's see what happens. Um, it's kind of like throwing a whole bunch of you know <laughs> up in the air and seeing what sticks yeah. when it comes down. Um, but uh, but Chris made it very very easy. Um, him and I immediately, he knew who I was, man. I mean, just from the, the, the mutual respect and 
from I immediately developed that with him and his playing and and his conversations and and just a, him as a human being. So um, we had that quick re- rapport, and he knew who I was from looking at the LP posters when he was younger and and knowing of my brother and my father and all that kind of stuff. So, but he helped me out tremendously. You know, if if I didn't have a chart for that particular song, and and again, this is where you got to go in big ears and and a lot of uh, experience. And it's more what not to do than what to do. Right. And that's that's always the, the the most important rule when you're going into a situation. Less is best is 100% the the, the best piece of advice. Oh, that's um, good. Because man. you you know yeah. you don't want to be popping out. Uh, at the end, you end the song, you still hear tambourine or shaker or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but um, but yeah, so Chris made it very very easy. And he would just look at me, and if there was going to be a stop, he would kind of give me the eye, and yeah. and so we we made it all to the point where if you see the video, you go, oh man, it looks like and sounds like you you know everything, and uh, it came out really really well. So it 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 was a great, it was easy playing with them, very very easy, um, and since a lot of the stuff didn't have percussion. I had to actually create percussion on the spot mm-hmm. that was complementary to the song, likable by that band at that time, and not popping out. You know, like easily could, you know, oh, let me put a timbali fill there because those everybody will look at me. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's not the way it'll go. Um, but at that time, it was just, you know, what's, again, you got to apply less is best and compliment the whole picture versus just what the musician is thinking always you got to put yourself like imagine yourself above the whole thing listening to everything how does it sound and how does it look so on that part just calls for a shaker playing eight notes that's what it calls for you don't need to play a shaker playing eight notes a kabasa tambourine uh then play a chime and then and then like like a lot of people end up doing just to fill up holes no you know with with the limited amount of real estate that one has here um you have to kind of always pick and choose your spots especially at, at the beginning and especially and also in recordings you know now it's like forget it now it's like you know i know the material so well sometimes i just i don't know i'm gonna put something here just because i want to you know but uh but it's it's turned into a great situation the band um has a great great energy um i've I've shared this with them um and you know i don't know if they realize where it's how how in depth of where it's coming from you're talking about a person with incredible history personal and from living it that the energy that's created when we play live is a wonderful and great experience and a great energy that's i think the ultimate reason why people come to the concert and they can feel that um they can feel that 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 intenseness that that you get just like when you go to a club and you hear like a badass band jamming um but you're hearing that in a in a stadium you know there's a certain intangible that comes off the stage that you can't really put your finger on, you know, but Correct. you know that Correct. it's there. You can feel it, Correct. you know, 
and now knowing knowing you and and Chris both, man, never going to meet two finer people that work together so well. So I mean, that's it, you got to have that's got to come off the stage as well. Yeah, Chris, Chris and I work really, really yeah, well. Do. He knows the material super, super well. Trust him, and he trusts me. So I, you know, we have fun. You know, sometimes I don't play the same lick there as this, so he knows. Oh wait, he left that alone and then uh, we just have fun i mean we've been doing it for so long that well and, and also man you be, being a percussionist in arguably one of the best gigs in existence right now for a percussionist because you know there, there's the old the old adage that's been said hundreds and hundreds of times both for for like legit percussionist and and pop and and, and latin percussionists they're always the last hired and the first fired right. man you got to be pinching yourself from time to time man going wow i i got this gig and it's just one of the best gigs around it's tremendous yeah you know absolutely and it's just obviously i'm super super grateful and um, you you have to mold it and make it. Yeah. You know, it's not just it just ta da happens. Right. Um, you have to create it because easily I could have gone there and could have been a novelty and said, okay, that was cool. Um, enough of that, and we just have it on a sequence or or we can do without it. You know, but I've become an integral part of yeah. not just musically, but of the personality, the concept of what what the band is. So it's not just the percussion, it's just the personality of this player, Daniel De Los Reyes, what he stands for, who he is, is part of the concept of what the Zach Brown band entity is. You know, what, what the brand is. You know, because obviously it's Zach Brown, but it comes with a very, very important set of guys that are part of that branding. Yeah. So you have to, it, it, that just doesn't para happen, you know, jump into it. Um, I could say if that was the case, it'd be easy to do that. Um, but no, you have to, um, it's a concept that's ever evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, crucial concept in our, in our livelihood for now and for the future because Diversity is important. Integration is important. That's what we're doing. Hence, that's why I'm here. I'm Cuban, Puerto Rican, American. Play percussion, play drums, entertain. And I'm here for a reason. Not just to go and play percussion. But it's also an added view of a added description to what the entity is so and each one brings something wonderful to the table each one of us um i could go through every one of them it'll take us a while but everyone brings something wonderful to the table that adds to what zach brown band is Mm -hmm. so and like i said it's ever evolving ever growing we're all Going and, and trying to do our best to be better individual and better human beings. Always. We falter. We make mistakes all the time. But, you know, you strive to become a better human being, which in, in an essence helps what the concept of the Zach Brown band entity is. Now, mind you, if you have Zach Brown solo, that's a different thing. But when you have Zach Brown band, 
what are they, this group of guys? You know, now it's interesting because I've seen the development of all of the guys, especially with their kids mm-hmm. and their marriages. And like I said, nobody's perfect. So, but at the same time, and they're growing, you know, Clay right now on his second son, and I've seen him change. You know, and this is a person who's, you know, Clay is maybe, I'm not sure of his age, but 40, close to 40 maybe. Um, he's definitely rocking the, 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 the marriage and the, and the two kids and, and, and being, being that, that figure. So I've seen him go from single man to now father to kids and, and holding that. And that's important because it changes how you play, how you view things, how you are, everything about you. Same thing with John, same thing with Zach, same thing with Coy. Um, and like I said, in all fairness to everybody, including myself, I'm a lot older than, than the rest of the guys. You know, you try to do your best that you can, but you step in poop all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. But that's sure. okay. As long as you can recognize it eventually. And it'll help you to become that much of a better of a, you know, a person, a human being father or husband or or bandmate so use all these things and and since i've gone through so much in my life and i have i refuse to just let all that valuable information just go to waste it's very very important that you use it for something in this case to become a better person um not easy looking back at some of the, the like the steps that i just said that you when you step in crap but uh but at the same time, you, you, it's reality. And sometimes it's sad. Sometimes it's embarrassing. Sometimes it's... But look at it as a learning experience. That's the only way to do it. And yeah, you regret it sometimes, some, some of the things and decisions that well, one does. But look at it as a learning experience to make you better. And the other one that I use a lot is look at it as a means to... Being able to communicate with another human being in a lot deeper way. Because now when you apply empathy and sympathy, it's completely different when you've gone through it yourself. Completely. I don't care what it is. And when you're, you know, a person like me that has gone through so, so much, um, I, I communicate. That's why I build friends all over the place because we, we, we have that common bond. When it's immediately we talk. We've gone through divorces we've gone through death we've gone through audits we've gone through broken foot we've gone through all sorts of different situations that we deem difficult so we have all those kinds of uh in common situations that we've gone through so we can already speak in a different way so in in going back to the band i'm seeing them go through their situations and it's interesting how they're evolving we're evolving and um you know, but just in in communicating this to everybody, you know, everybody has to, I think, have a certain compassion and tolerance for everybody's, you know, again, just because we're up there with the band and, and people enjoy what we do and they come and see us and, um, you know, they applaud what we do, we're not anywhere near perfect or mean to be. Danny, so, if, if there was a Hall of Fame 
for the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. The last five minutes of what you just said <laughs> deserves to be on that Hall of Fame show. That was f- fantastic, man. That's one of the best things I've ever heard anybody say on this show. Well, I appreciate that. Thank I you. mean, it absolutely is. I mean, it's that, that's absolute gold. And while, while we're talking about Zach Brown Band, I, I always ask people who are part of a touring band that regularly tours to give us a little bit of a rundown of when you guys are out on the road, not necessarily going out and doing a one-off, but when you're out on the road. I want to hear a little bit about what your daily routine is like. For example, let's say you guys are out, you roll into Denver to play a show or whatever city of your choice. What does your daily routine look like? And we'll go up to soundcheck and then we'll go up to gig. So there are basic routine things that I'd like to accomplish throughout the day. When I don't get them done, I I don't feel good about it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's so many variables because of the way we travel and what you're going through. I've experienced in the last few years more and more um, situations that get in the way of me being able to accomplish those certain things that I like to do throughout the day. Now, I just, I'm patient with it, and I realize that I just have to kind of be even more flexible than ever. An example, I like to have a small protein breakfast. Mm -hmm. My coffee, do some business, and then go do a workout. Go and chill out, maybe make some phone calls, and start my warm-ups. And from warm-up all the way through to the show, I feel like I should do a show before the show. Interesting. I think Chris mentioned something about sound checks, that sometimes the sound checks are really, really short. Yeah, we, we rarely sound check. Right. I mean, okay. we sound check is not something we do. Okay. The, we have a crew that's great, and they check all our equipment. So when, we're on, when we go up on stage... I know that equipment is like flawless. And no, no worries about your monitors. Flawless. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the one thing that, that needs to be, or else you would need to have sound checks and sure. rehearsals and all that. Um, but when it comes to me, as far as like that, that seems like a perfect day. Now, what could come in the way of that? <laughs> a million things. Uh, I didn't get a good sleep the mm-hmm. night before. I didn't wake up at the time I needed to. I'm sluggish. So, for instance, I've been going through some health issues. Uh, you know, sleeping has always been a, 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 an issue. And that could, that, that, that's a program in itself, okay? Right. Um, you can just imagine being trained and, 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 and growing up in Las Vegas where night is day, <laughs> day is night. Yeah. Um, then working, touring, then add going out at night. Uh, you can just imagine, uh, my body has no clock. As a matter of fact, at night it kind of wakes up. That's, that's it. And here I'm trying to be a morning person. So you can just yeah. imagine. Now imagine if you need to wake up to go travel at 8 a.m. You got to be in the lobby. And you had a bad night sleeping and you just went to bed at 5.30 and barely. It's not going to be cool. And you got to work that night when you get there. Mm-hmm. So... A simple thing like sleeping properly is not so simple. Sleeping properly has become the priority. 
If I don't sleep and regenerate, uh, forget it. I'm no good. So, and that, that can be changed by, again, what I'm going through because of the incredible training that I have had to sleep bad. Imagine, I've trained myself to sleep bad for a long time. Mm -hmm. Now try training yourself out of it. Not easy. So then on top of it, actual health, physical things that happen, such as from right now I've been diagnosed with a thing called uh, sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. So ugh, now that too, you know, so and I'm dealing with it. And you have to be open, flexible, and patient as you go through the treatment. And... As you know, as we get a little older, things start happening. The thyroid's not working the same. Ah, you know, so that can cause, you know, so again, going back to the sleep. So if you don't sleep well, you're not able to wake up at 9 a.m., have a nice protein breakfast, mm -hmm. and do a nice little short walk or a nice little cardio workout, okay? So the other thing is, you know, traveling, uh, you might not get that option. The other thing to that is is that you might just get there and there isn't enough time for warm-ups. So all sorts of variables that change your wanted routine. But you got to be okay with that because if you're not, you're going to drive yourself crazy. So, I mean, I love to warm up for at least two hours. Two, wow. I that is love, the show before oh, yeah, the show, yeah. man. But it was up to me. For, well, here, I'll give you another one. I, I know the first time I met you, man, we were at that GAD tribute, and, and you were backstage warming up on Conga when I came up and talked to you. So And you were warm. You had been warming up for a while, man, prior to that. So I, I believe it. I absolutely. believe it. I love, yeah. I love to warm up. Um, because it's almost like before you go and run, you know, you get that, that blood flowing, that mind moving, the, the muscles warmed up. So when you go to do the show, piece of cake. As a matter of fact, I could do a show after the show and a show after <laughs> the after show. Yeah. That's what I've been trained to do. So, but, uh, you know, and then the other thing, uh, two things I want to interject really quick, you know, winding down after a show. That's a tough one. Because a lot of times, you know, your your energy is still up. You can do, like I said, another show. So good luck trying to go to bed at 12.30 and wake up at 9 a.m. It's, 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 it's a tough one. Um, the other one, what was the other one I was just going to tell you? Um, shoot, I lost my train of thought here. Was it about the warm-up? Yeah, yeah, it was concerning warm-up. Um, oh, well, I mean, but one key... key uh, Something that happened the other day, um, right now. This is why I have a little wrist uh, splint. Um, didn't warm up. Went and played at a, at a local uh, establishment called Dixie Tavern uh, with Brian Collins and Coy, Coy, <laughs> Coy Bowls. And um, uh, we're jamming with the guys. And they were rocking it, both of them. Uh, I, I went there to play with Brian Collins, and Coy said, hey, you want to jam with me? So, yeah. So, absolutely. We had a great time. But bar, loud, um, was going for it. Didn't warm up properly and did something to attend it. So, now I'm paying the price for that. So, and why is that? Because I didn't warm up. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, had a few drinks at the bar. Didn't notice that I was quite hitting as hard as... As I was, and sure enough, so now I'm paying the price. I got to ice it. I got to lay off of it for a second. Um, but all these type of things you got to take into consideration. 
Um, so, I mean, this is just me. Um, obviously, everybody in the band has different uh, uh, routines sure. that they do. Uh, a lot, of the, Most of the guys, because they're great singers, they go and do vocal warm-ups prior to a show about an hour before. Um, I use that time, and Chris does too, to go and warm up. I warm up on cases, and he warms up on, on pad. Right. And so we're back on stage, you know, warming up. Gotcha. I feel like, man, that you and I could sit here and talk for like six hours. And believe it or not, we've been going for about an hour and a half. And I and, and I know that what you, time is? It? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, man. It's almost one o'clock. So okay. I I know that 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 you're getting ready to get out of here in a few minutes. So what I want to do is I want to take just a few more minutes. We have maybe about ten ten more minutes Absolutely. or so, something like that. Ten fifteen minutes. Absolutely. Warm. I feel like we're going to need to do a part two <laughs> at yeah, another time. That. Also, you know. Absolutely. But anyway. Anyway, what I wanted to talk about before we finish up, because I think it's incredibly important, is that you are the creator of the Dayglow uh, Music School. And I want you to tell everybody basically what that is and what you do with that, because I think it's very important. I'll give you the short skinny of it, because I really do feel that we could have a part two. And why not? Okay. Why not? We could sure. do that. So... Um, I'm at a point in my life where <clears throat> I've gone through so much that no longer working to make ends meet and to meet Danny's uh, needs only are what's important. Uh, so living to pay the bills and living to to just function with your immediate, whether it's you and your spouse, you and your spouse, and your one kid or two kids or three kids, that's important, but it's no longer only the only thing that's important to me. So I went through some situations that I was faced with life or death. So in choosing life, you have to, you have to kind of go why. You know, so that big why as to why we're living, why we're here, you know, that's a, that's a big question that one commonly have at some point um, of one's life. And so for me, what I've realized, number one, is how uh, blessed, number one, that one is to be living, to be breathing and, and being able to be here interacting with other human beings blessed completely so no matter what you believe in you have to like give give thanks okay and in and in giving thanks you have to know well for instance and i was just talking about this last night we've been fortunate enough to be i i'm going to just speak for myself born with the parents that i have been able to go from Havana to New York to Puerto Rico and the United States, and I've been blessed. I wasn't born in Africa. I wasn't born in a country that was in serious hardship. I was born in a great place. So that in itself is like incredible. I feel that it comes with a responsibility now that I've kind of opened my eyes, and that responsibility is, is that other people have not. So if somebody isn't, 
I feel almost like a fiduciary uh, responsibility to help others. That's one. Um, because I've been gifted so much. So going back to after, you know, the why. So I feel without getting accolades, testimonials, or getting any sort of reward other than knowing when you close your eyes at the end of the night that you are being the best human being you can and trying or trying to be the best human being you can, again, without perfection. I mean, because, again, you're going to falter. But um, that the best way to do that is by helping others. Okay? And if I walk by myself, what's the sense of being here? If I walk by myself and just for two other people, again, I could do more. So my whole thing is I really want to know that I help in some way this art to be better, this, this existence to be better. And how I choose to do that is by helping your fellow neighbor. Now, in helping your fellow neighbor, I've come up with Dayglow Music. Because I don't know how to do anything else, or did not know, now I know a lot more, um, you know, music was the only way. Because after I've, I went through that, I wasn't even sure that I was going to pursue music. I was just grateful to be alive. I was really excited about talking, meeting people, didn't matter where, whether it was, you know, laying cement, shingles on the roof, working, doing cleaning pools, didn't matter. I was ecstatic to be here. So, but then I realized that in doing what I do, not only could I obviously uphold the way I live, but be able to expand on that. And so I was just going to start by just teaching, taking on students. And not so much teaching, but coaching, being an influence too. With everything that I've been able to accept as information to be better that I've gone through. Good and bad. Okay? So... Now, since music is what I've trained to do for so long, thought, okay, I can use that as a tool. So in itself, to teach the arts is a wonderful thing to do, a wonderful endeavor, you know, helping to instill that, the arts and the love of it. And, but it goes way deeper than that because now I'm able to really help humanity by expanding on the concept of showing through example so if i can demonstrate to people that i'm open that i am diverse that i use integration and diversity with respect communication and flexibility people will see that and i will be able to affect others and in that the people that get affected will then affect another and then another, and then another. So that is my way of, of being able to be better. So when I close my eyes, yes, I still have issues going to sleep, physical. But man, I'm, I'm, 
making an impact in this world with the help of others that are actually seeing it. And they see my conviction, my focus, my devotion, and they're, we want to help Danny, and we want to be part of it. That's why I encourage people to, you know, come to me, communicate with me, reach out to me. Um, because I am moving all over the place, but I need help. And those people that are attaching themselves to me and helping me, I, you know, I value them very, very much. Because they in itself, it's not like they're just helping Danny. They're part of a movement that that movement is about having an impact. And, not, and like I said, not an impact to get the accolades or the testimonials, but an impact because that's what we need to do to make this world a better place. We do use the testimonials um, as proof so other people can see that what we're doing is actually working. So then that way they can help us, whether it be spiritually, monetarily, or just giving us input or just being there. But, uh, but it's not just to get, you know, the, the immediate reward, okay? Um, so anyway, with that came, you know, I wanted to use music, what I know, to help to impact others. So that's why I started, you know, I started as, as like, let me, let me uh, coach a few students. And then I thought, you know what, why not start? I started it as a camp, but it's really a school. Um, but at this particular time, we've not, we're not yet at the point because we need to develop it. We need, we need deeper pockets. We need to hire the correct people to help, the administration, you know, everything that it costs to get a business up and running and going. Yes, I'm the founder, but man, I, I need a lot of help. And a lot of times, you know, people volunteer and they help, but up to a certain point, and then they have their, their things to do. And so... That happens, but I can't wait to one day have you know full-on administrative staff and and the whole thing functioning. So then that way we can not only open up the school in Fayetteville, Georgia, and have it run completely all you know uh, not not so much all the time throughout the year, but certain points of the year where we're running programs. The other time is running administratively, so it runs well throughout the rest of the year, but also that we can open up centers or help to instill programs in schools already existing or to start programs in schools that don't have it, which there's a lot of that, or to help to put it in a center, you know, of, of some sort uh, throughout the summer months, let's mm -hmm. just say, in different cities. So... My, my goals are, are huge, you know, but I have to be patient with it. If not, I'm going to drive myself crazy. Um, like, for instance, uh, like I said, it could be a whole program on this, and I like, I like to have a secondary uh, option to, to talk about Dayglow music and, and Dayglow relief because it's doing so much and, the imp and, you know, the importance of it. But, like, right now I just got back from, from Cuba, and after being there... Um, and studying this wonderful music called Changui, um, going to the art school, the university there, interacting with the kids and studying with the teachers that, that, that play this music, beautiful music, by the way. Um, I realized that 
I want to bring that to one of the programs here, which is a world music program that I run with different kinds of music that we uh, that we teach here at Deglo and then, um, but incorporate Changui into one of the styles from Cuba. Okay, and so by being there, I just realized, wow, how incredible it would be to have an exchange. A cultural music exchange with the students going over there of course with a, uh, a parent and taking eight to ten to twelve kids and interacting with the kids at the university there which has a wonderful Changui program on top of other things and being able to to share that experience with the kids from here let's say right now from from this particular Deglo music school in Georgia Take, let's say right now, eight kids to Guantanamo, Cuba, have workshops every day with the teachers that are known to be the best for this style, two workshops a day, and on the last day, have them perform with the band and share with the kids over there. And also take instruments. And for instance, going over there, they didn't even, one book they had, they asked me for if there's anything you could bring, you know, Buddy Rich book, the Podemski book, we only have one book. I'm like, man, you know, we need to be able to 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 assist and help others. Um, but also to have that experience of learning Changui from where it comes from. Not just learning it here at Deglo, on the grounds of Deglo in Georgia, but actually mixing and playing with the band and getting that into yourself. How wonderful would that be? On top of it, we have programs here without leaving here, that are very, very rich and in-depth. That, well, for instance, that world music program, I'll give you an example. This last summer, we ran a program from one week of a style of music that will be in that world music program at Deglo Music. And that was Puerto Rican music, but Puerto Rican music uh, as a whole, but also two particular styles, which is bomba and plena. Mm -hmm. Bomba and plena, but not just to learn percussion of it, not learn the history of number one. So you get an in-depth view of Puerto Rican music all over, whether it be from the main cities or the country, and then bomba and plena, history on that, the instrumentation. Then I brought a professor of the director of Ponce Music School, um, who's a flautist, uh, teaches singing, and uh, you can just imagine she's been teaching for over 30 some years. I brought her along with her fiance, who's an incredible percussionist, especially knows an expert in bomba and plena, and then also a, a, an incredible cuatro player, which is a, the guitar of Puerto Rico, which is almost like a it looks like a violin and it has four strings with double strings on mm -hmm. it's kind of like a mandolin type of sound and so the students here although the students that came here are one was a guitar player the rest of them were horn players two percussionists so but what i wanted is for everybody to learn everything there's a reason for that and it's so it expands your mind and your heart and your soul so that way you're 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 wanting to want more information. The more information that you get, that you're open to that from all over the world, not just imagine 
Puerto Rico, West Africa, you know, uh, Japan, uh, Greece, uh, you know, Ireland, all these different programs in the world music program. So they get all this information from all these different styles of music. Mind you, if they love any one more than another and they want to go in one direction more than another, obviously they, they, they can. Nowadays you can do that so easily. But here you will get a, an incredible dose of that. What that does is, number one, as a musician, it expands your library. So it, it's, it's so in-depth how it, it opens you up. As a human being, it opens you up to being able to accept others from other places, other cultures, and other belief systems, and to know that we need to treat each other with equality. And re equality comes with respect and communication. We don't always have to agree, but it's, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing that we're not the same. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of it. The moment you don't do that and you're rigid and you think you know it all and you don't want to learn anymore, you can just imagine you don't expand anymore. And I believe the only way that we can do that is through proper communication that comes with uh, flexibility and respect. And with that, you develop tolerance because a lot of times you don't understand things, whether it be musically uh, it could be food. It could be the way something looks. You don't understand it. So instead of approaching it and how weird is, it's like, let me just look at it. Let me try to accept it as best as possible. Hence, they should do that to you as well. You know, and if you are never in a situation that you have or someone does that to you or doesn't do that to you you will never know what that feels like so if you only feel like people have to just accept you and that's it you go up with that and but imagine now you learning that how wonderful it is that they treated me with equal and utmost respect as i treat them so and this goes in music. So that way, when I bring a troupe here from, you know, from Puerto Rico to teach music, immediately your heart, your ears, your mind, everything's open. So you're just absorbing. And that becomes part of who you are. You know, so that is the main concept of what Dayglow music is, is really all about. Man. Danny, I normally finish up most of the interviews that I do on the show by asking the the guest if they have any advice for young musicians but you've basically given an hour and 45 minutes of advice it's been absolutely tremendous man i i'm not like i said i'm not sure that there's anything else that you could add to it other than let's just say we're going to do a second part sometime down the road yeah i mean i, mean, I would love to to talk more in depth yeah. about dayglow music and day dayglow relief because of what we're doing and what we're looking to do so um i do apologize for going but you know, sometimes that's what the way the interviews go. Well, know? that's the the one thing that I've always said about this show, because we don't do a lot of interviews on here. But the one thing that I always say to all of the guests is this is not one of those shows that's like a TV show where you've got seven minutes to get in and out. I want everybody to completely and totally feel at ease and elaborate on anything they want to talk about. This is a long form show. So if the show goes 45 minutes, great. If it goes two hours, fantastic. And so that's what this show's about. And so you've you've done it just tremendously well, man. We appreciate you being it. a Thank guest you. on here. Now, to finish up the show, because we got to get you packed up, uh, 
to finish up the show, we always have a little bit of fun. Okay. It takes about one minute. And what we do is we do a quick round of question and answer. It's just fun stuff. Some stuff about music, some stuff just about life. It's just 20 quick questions. Don't think about it too much. There's no right or wrong answer. You mean a one-word answer from yeah, me? No, That's almost impossible. No. <laughs> keep, keep the answers down to like 10 seconds. And okay. It'll be fine. But, but a lot of it is going to be yes or no type thing. Okay. okay so you ready? Yep. Here we go. Absolutely. You're not going to hurt anybody's feelings just with the answer. Shoot. Los Angeles or New York City? Los Angeles. On hand drums, skinheads or synthetic? Ooh, tough one. Both. Okay. What's your favorite drumming method book? Tough one. <laughs> Stick control. Classic. Who is your most influential Congaro? Wow. Tough one again. <laughs> she said I have so many. Um, Tata Guinness. Okay. Favorite Mofongo, beef, chicken, or pork? <laughs> these, are, these are all tough i go through all of them um i've been into pork lately hard to go wrong with that clave sewn or rumba rumba in-ear monitors or wedge monitors both mm. tour bus bunk upper middle or lower whatever comes <laughs> okay what's your favorite cowbell Gumbops bells. Got it. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Yeah, you've been drinking coffee all morning, right? Cuban coffee at that. Yeah. Do you use evaporated milk? Sometimes. Yeah. I use powdered milk. I use... I'm going to open up a coffee shop. That's something. We could talk about that later. Oh, yeah, I'm going to give you a coffee recommendation also for some fantastic Cuban coffee in Atlanta. Are you familiar with La Fonda Cuban Restaurant? No. La Fonda Cuban Restaurant's down in Midtown. It's right on the corner of like Howell Mill and I think... Ninth, incredible Cuban coffee. They do it right. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow. I do a lot of gigs down in that area, man. I always make sure. I just this past weekend. I'm going to make you a cup before we get going. At, well, I have my better half, Joandra, make you a cup of Cuban coffee up there. I'll take it. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. What is the toughest rudiment for you to play? Um. Anything adding like a Rademacue on it, um, and and yeah, anything adding like a Rademacue, like on a double paradiddle or something, okay. and then doing it up to speed, you know, uh, those kinds of things of adding that, uh, especially going back and forth from left to right. Uh, you, you thought about that one too much. We're just we're going to say Rademacue. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite vacation spot? Ooh. Tough one right now, Maui. Oh, yeah. What is your favorite city that you've never lived in? In the U.S.? No, it could be anywhere. Oh, man. I love Barcelona and Madrid. Yeah. Beautiful places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before the gig, tape your hands or nothing on your hands? Nothing. Okay. What's your favorite car? I like trucks right now. Spoken like Zach Brown band member, <laughs> right? Yeah. Name an aspect of touring that you dislike. Sometimes the, the travel. Yeah. 
waiting, man, a lot of times also. A lot of hurry up and wait. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's it. That's you're right. It's awful, man. That wears you out more than yeah. anything. Is the hurry up and wait at either airports or buses or whatnot. Yeah. Yard work. You do it, or that's what I pay landscapers for. Oh no, I do it. All right, on man. What's your favorite movie? Well, that's a tough one. Too many, too many. All right, we'll, we'll skip that one. Name the most recent time you practiced drum set. Oh, a couple of months ago. Yeah. A couple of months ago, I took out the drum set. I got to do it again. Yeah. All right, last question. Yes, sir. What's your favorite hobby outside of playing music? Oh, man, I don't have anything. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> the same way. <laughs> I do it all. Yeah. Chainsawing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, my favorite chains, I've got a steel that I like oh, a lot. Oh, steel is the best. It's fantastic, man. No, it, that's, I, a, that's the first time that, that's been brought up on the show. <laughs> I don't know how anybody can do it. There's the best piece of advice. If you buy, like, if you have a yard, steel products. I've got, man, I've got a I've got a steel chainsaw, blower, blower and a, and a string trimmer too, man. That's got all the different attachments. It's like I Me like too. a little. That's saw. exactly. Oh right man, now. look at this! You got to come over to my house, man. We'll compare steel equipment. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you know, I have a, yeah. I have a, somewhat of an endorsement with steel. So you got to be kidding I swear to me, God. man! Come out in Tractor magazines now. Uh, uh, steel magazine. I love steel products. A steel endorsement. I swear to God. Man, you are the only person I've <laughs> ever met that's had an endorsement outside of our normal stuff. You know, you get a steel endorsement. Well, You're going to get involved in like product development, man, pretty soon over there with those guys. That's yeah, where the real money is going to be made, right? That's no, just steel products. <laughs> I'm a big fan of them. You know. <laughs> I used it last night. All know. right. Danny, whew, man, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much, man, for being on the show. You're welcome. We're going to fast track, get this thing out this week. Awesome. All right, buddy. Thank you. Huge thanks to Daniel De Los Reyes for giving me my wish of doing a segment on the show regarding steel lawn and garden products. They really are great. Maybe he, they're going to be our first sponsors for the show. But seriously, though, um, Danny was absolutely fantastic, and I look forward to doing a part two somewhere down the road with him where we can dig in even deeper with his philanthropical endeavors, which are significantly more than than just uh, Dayglow music, if that's not enough. And with that in mind, I mentioned to him that I would make special note to tell everyone to go buy Dayglow Music's website. It is www.dayglowmusic.org. There at that website, you can see even more what Danny's up to, what he's done in the past. You can also reach out to him there. And more importantly, if you are so inclined, you can leave a donation at that website as well. Uh, I will link that website in our show notes. So if you will click over to our show notes, you will find a, a link in there that will take you straight to Dayglow Music's website. Now, underneath my inane ramblings, you are hearing some traditional uh, Cuban Shangui music, which was uh, what Danny was talking about also when he was down in Cuba, and that's the style that he was stating so he could come back and share it with some of the students at Dayglow Music. So you can hear a little bit of that on our way out. Past that, thanks again for listening. As always, we appreciate your support and your listenership. 
If you would like, head on over to our website. We are at www.drummersweeklygroovecast.com. There you can find out everything you ever want to know about the show. You can access all of our episodes. You can watch some of our videos. You can manage your social media. Uh, You can also reach out to the show by filling out our email form there. So head on over to our website, www.drummersweeklygroovecast.com. New shows come out every Monday. Once again, we appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you again next week. On behalf of John and Danny, this is Phil. See you soon.